This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Stephen. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that this podcast will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. Oh, welcome in, friends. The second week of January we're in, at least when the episode's coming out. Isn't that crazy? That is absurd. Recording into the 2021 future. 2021 is here. What's up? Uh, I guess the big the big news from the week that we're recording is like the the Pfizer vaccine got approved by the FDA. Yes. So we'll That's see how true. our world changes this year. Mm-hmm. We're all going to get. By the time this episode comes out, it could be a whole yep. new world or just about the same. New world order <laughs> because we've all voluntarily accepted the mark of the beast and now we're just <laughs> descending into the apocalypse times. You know, yes. you know how vaccines work. No. <laughs> Absolutely, said no one ever. Uh, what are you drinking? Well, I'm currently halfway through my cup of coffee already, but I'm drinking the holiday blend from Olympia Coffee Roasting here in Washington State, and it's delicious. I added just like a little touch of cinnamon to like make it a little bit more mm. festive, and it's oh, excellent. very delicious. Yes, ho ho, ho. I love it. Abs- yeah. Ab- what are you? What are you drinking, Emily? Um, I'm drinking a can of Canada Dry Ginger Ale. I'm uh I'm having some uh nausea and that that can be easily explained. So, it's called morning sickness. And oh. morning sickness comes when you're having a baby. Yes. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. Yeah, I'm about let's see be 12 weeks. Yeah. So, just just approaching the end of my first trimester. Congratulations. Thank My goodness. You. It's crazy. Is, you know how big your child inside of you is? Yeah, it's about the size of, well, I'm trying to think. It can vary between, I think it's a like a kind of small handful of grapes or oh. like a like a small tangelo, you know, mm, you know, like those yeah. little cutie oranges type things. Um, right. Oh. So pretty tiny, but a lot of development has taken place. Oh. So it's pretty crazy. Absolutely. I got a little wow. tiny fruit inside of me that's going to be oh. a human. That's very sweet. Congratulations, Emily. This is baby number one for you and Alex. This is, is baby this number one. Yeah. Oh. Very exciting. We're so excited. So absolutely. You should be. Yes. yes. Steven, what are you drinking this week? Oh, well, I'm not pregnant, so I can drink alcohol. <laughs> um, I'm drinking I'm drinking a delicious ice-cold Montucky cold snack, oh. uh, which bi- they bill themselves as the official, unofficial beer of Montana. Yes. And oh, it's, it's absolutely delicious. It's very refreshing. It's one of those beers where you should definitely make sure you keep it cold, though, you know? Oh, yeah. Ooh. Oh, yeah. But that's that's part of the charm of this kind of beer. So we're kicking into okay. it. We're kicking into it. Oh. I I was very curious to start a conversation with you two, Josh. I know you and I were kind of raised in the in similar Protestant and um, Baptist settings, 
or uh-huh. like I, I called my church kind of like closeted Baptist because we were non-denominational, <laughs> but all our theology was Baptist. We just didn't want to be part of the denominational structure. Yeah. Uh, we were very much out of the closet Baptist for yeah, sure. Right. Because once you and put the name in front of it, people know. So it's true. Yeah. It's, it's like the denomination, it puts you in a box, but then every denomination tries to be like, but don't put us in a box though. Yeah. It's very weird, but that's not what I want to talk about. Um, and I'm particularly interested to, for today's topic because Emily, you happen to be a member of the clergy and leading a church and leading a team of staff. So I want to talk about the way money factors into our Christian life. Well, I think it goes without saying that if someone doesn't support our Patreon that we just started, um, you might be risking not getting into heaven. I don't want to like explicitly say like you're not making it because you still might, but like, uh, you know, it's hard to pass through the, it's harder for you to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for you to get there. So, right. Just want to put that out there. Um, You know, I thought that was pretty obvious, but just in case someone didn't think that already. Throwing down the gauntlet. (laughs) Absolutely. It is. My goodness. So I think this is a really good topic. Okay. Yeah, I do too. I'm I'm glad you guys are into it. And we'll see. Maybe it's one episode, maybe it becomes multiple episodes because I feel like there is such a treasure trove here like about <laughs> about how we yeah, the treasure pun was trove. intended. Um <laughs> about how we lead our Christian life because I I've heard growing up very often, especially when it comes to the the church's like year-end giving series, which I've Mm. become kind of skeptical and cynical of, unfortunately, like a lot of the sermons are geared around, Hey, did you know that the majority of things that Jesus talks about in the gospels is money? Like, did you know that money actually has a big part of this? And then it turns into kind of a, a pitch for, and this is why you should make sure you're tithing. And this is why you give the offering above and beyond the tithe every December when we're like headed into Christmas because the church needs to fund it's lifestyle or whatever. That already sounds cynical and I know it does. <laughs> For sure, so, yeah. So, Emily, I was <laughs> wondering if you would give us a little background to what you know about the way money behaved in the Old Testament. In particular, what oh. do you know about the story of Abraham tithing to Melchizedek in the city of Salem? Oh, Melchizedek. Wow, I did not think you were going to go this direction wow i want to start from the beginning man yeah (laughs) well hold on i want to know josh why what was what were you thinking was going to be our starting angle and what is it about Um, this angle that you're caught off guard because i i kind of want to know too okay well i'm kind of similar to steven in terms of where we were raised in terms of uh like how the church relates to money with the exception that I'm a pastor's kid. So like for the majority of my life, for 25 out of my 26 years, I have directly benefited from church finances, even though I have not been staffed myself. Sure. Wow. Um, Like the church has been the majority funder for my parents' income. Mm -hmm. So. Right. um, I have some very nuanced views on church finances and generosity. So I thought we were going to mostly talk about like, some of the modern issues that we've run into, but I well, we really don't, like that we're like starting where the I don't want to where dwell. the Bible starts to make sense right. of it. I don't I don't want to dwell in the Old Testament too long because, but I do want to establish 
where the Hebrew Bible informs the way Jesus talks about money and how totally how our attitude as the a, a post Christ world, like how our attitude around money is informed by Jesus and Paul. But I, because they were both Jews, I think it's important to start with the Old Testament foundation of how money is to be treated. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So Melchizedek, for those who have not read or heard of Melchizedek, is a really important figure in biblical tradition. He was a king and considered a priest, and he was connected with Jerusalem and very much revered by Abraham. And this story essentially begins with Abraham rescuing his kidnapped nephew. Mm-hmm. His nephew Lot was kidnapped, and he was helping with defeating the coalition of Mesopotamian kings. And essentially, Melchizedek meets Abraham on his return from battle, and he gives him bread and wine, and he blesses Abraham in the name of God Most High. And in return, Abraham gives him a tithe, or essentially a certain percentage of his money. Mm-hmm. And I think what's interesting about this is. This is one of the first times we see payment being made that was not required. And that's essentially mm-hmm. like what a tithe is, is it's something that you are you should do. You're not really asked to do it, but there's something that's moving you to do that. And Abraham was moved to give something back to Abraham, even though it wasn't asked of him to do so. Mm. Abraham was recognizing the authority and the authenticity of Melchizedek's presence. And I think this might have been a part of why he felt the need to like pay a tribute to him. And mm, yeah, he sure. was anticipating that Abraham's descendants would then also do the same and bring tithes to the priests of Jerusalem who were ministering to different areas and part of the sanctuary in, in the capital. It may also relate to the conflict between priests, like the Levite descendants from Abraham and the priests of Jerusalem who later changed their allegiance to God. And Mm. they were wanting to monopolize the Jerusalem priesthood, which essentially was not what the Levite priests were wanting to do. So just even the concept of we see in biblical history this idea of monopolizing is not a modern day element. This is something that Mm. even was affecting people way back then. Mm. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting. And Melchizedek is just one of the coolest characters of the Bible ever. And he comes back in the book of Hebrews when the Mm -hmm. writer is essentially trying to tie Jesus's uh, priestly rights back to, I've heard it pronounced Melchizedek, Melchizedek. I'm fine with either. Like, obviously, you're the one with the MDiv, so I'll go, I'll default to you. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, you just blasted through so many things I wanted to make sure we mentioned, especially the way this kind of morphs itself into the 11 tribes or the 12 tribes of Israel Mm -hmm. supporting the Levites because the Levites were, were the ones in the law who weren't given a portion of the promised land. They weren't given land. They were expected to live in and among the other tribes but the tribes mm. were were then expected to turn around some of their profits and some of their their harvests 
to make sure that the Levites were supported wherever they lived, right? Right. I had not heard that before. That's really interesting. Oh, really? Yeah, I've never heard that. So does I'm trying to like make an analogy here, and this might be too much of a stretch, but was the the tithe and the support of the Levites by the tribes of Israel basically like a glorified thank you gift? Like it was definitely a custom, but it wasn't like a commandment. Yeah, that's how that's how I okay. would interpret it. And what's interesting is Melchizedek or Melchizedek, however you want to, he actually tr- refuses to take any of it for himself. Like, yeah, a- oh. Abraham is wanting to pay him. He's trying to say, hey, like, thank you for this. I, you know, that this is not necessary. So please take this money. And Melchizedek Whoa. is like, I, I can't take this for myself. This, you know, Whoa. this has to be put. To I've use. never heard that either. This has to be put to use in some other way. Um, and actually, this is the story a lot of people had interpreted before Jesus's time that some scholars would believe that Melchizedek could have possibly been the Messiah that they were referring to. Mm. So and it's this story that kind of helps start that navigation of how that could be a possibility. Um well, there's a lot. There's a lot to this story, especially when you take in the context. So, like Abraham, uh, well, at the time he's Abram. He's he's yet to be named or renamed, but so he rec- rescues Lot uh, and then comes back to Melchizedek at Salem, which becomes Jerusalem, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Jerusalem. It's important to note, though, like literally when the story of Abram and Melchizedek ends, we flip into Genesis 15 where it's at this point God makes the covenant with Abram. This is where the the famous yeah. passage where they they divide the animals and the way the covenant is laid out is both members entering into the covenant are to walk the aisle between the two like halves of the sacrificed animals, but God famously puts Abram to sleep and walks walks the covenantal aisle alone essentially saying like you don't have to make i'm making this covenant with you but i'm not and i i'm not expecting nor do i believe that you can ever hold your end of the bargain up so i will mm. hold both ends of the bargain up and that's like the famous abrahamic covenant right mm-hmm. but it's only after abraham huh. demonstrates his willingness to be generous yeah. with Melchizedek that the covenant comes about like that's that that seems to be one of the most important aspects of that story is like once a generous heart and a generous attitude is again proven still feels like it's a like you're trying to buy yourself into a covenant or buy yourself into mm-hmm. salvation or whatever but like once once it's revealed that Abram has a generous heart is when God is like now yeah. I can use you now that you recognize mm. that you can give all this away mm. and not be reliant on the empire you build for yourselves or the flocks you build for yourselves, now I can use you in the way I intend to use you. Oh, that's mm. an interesting point. Yeah. Okay. So where do they transition from like that Abrahamic tithe and idea of generosity to, isn't, isn't the word tithe used a couple times in Mosaic law, but also in regards to like, food and spices and stuff or did that happen in the intertestamental period or am i confusing things uh, no tithe was mentioned in in the mosaic law for sure the yeah. tithe okay. system was organized 
in a seven-year cycle. And oh. this mandatory tithe was actually, it was distributed locally to help support the Levites and assist the poor during the Mosaic yeah. right. period. Yeah. So Josh, you kind of had heard of that, just not necessarily yeah. linked yeah. to the support of the Levites. Right. So that's essentially where it where it goes. But then I'm glad you bring up the intertestamental or however you said that, that the time between Malachi and Matthew, essentially like that 400 years mm-hmm. of silence, mm-hmm. as it's called. The next passage I wanted to bring up was the uh, the passage in Malachi three where God talks about the tithe or through the prophet. Mm. You know, the divine is talking about the tithe and the heading in my Bible reads, do not rob God. So it's Malachi Mm. 3, verses 8 through 10. I'll just read it quick here. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse. For you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing, that there will not be room enough to receive it. So like... I've heard this passage used by pastors in the year of our Lord 2019 and 2020, basically saying like, this is why tithe is still a requirement, which is the next spot I wanted to explore with you, Emily, because you already mentioned that (laughs) tithe is not required, but it's still kind of like a quote unquote, like you should tithe. Yeah. Let's explore that parsing of language there, because this is where... I think it's really easy for us as Christians to start feeling tremendous guilt around the way we handle our money. Sure. What exactly, like, what are you wanting me to speak to? In your view, as a pastor who is directly supported by tithes, is it required of the the laity or, you know, of the, the congregation? No, I would say it's not required. Tithing is one of those elements at least in the church, that you know there are those who can and choose not to. There are those who can and really probably shouldn't if they want to maintain their own way of living. If they're, you know, if they're tithing, but they're trying to get by on rent or utilities, Mm. we don't ask people to give up something just so we keep the lights on. It's not, it's not one of those things we, we encourage people to, and it's tithing can become a very spiritual element of your being, but only if you approach it from a wholesome point of view. If you just see it as, oh, well, this is just to keep the lights on, then that, that's not really tithing. It's, it's almost like you're then feeling guilty and you feel like you have to. And that's not really what tithe should be. Mm. It is that selfless act of giving in a way that's different than your other spiritual gifts. Is your church completely supported by uh, membership donations or are you also supported by the denomination? It's both. Interesting. Yeah. See, like where I come from, it was only from the congregation that they were supported. Like the church had no other revenue stream. It really, I think it depends on the denomination. And I think it does. And I, you know, I, I'm still new in this too, so I may not be able to speak to it fully. But from what I know, you know, depending on where you are at as a pastor. So if you are provisionally serving like I am, or if you're fully ordained, you 
there are different expectations of what you can bring to your church. So therefore, there are different Huh. paychecks that you <laughs> that you're given. So mm. I'm I'm not getting paid the same as a fully ordained person because I cannot serve a hundred percent in the same capacity that they are. So it doesn't make oh, sense that I get paid the same as them. And that might be up for debate. You know, there might be some people that totally disagree with that. Um, but those are things that are guaranteed, whereas other elements are dependent on our tithes and offerings from our laity and from our congregation. It's just like a parsonage is not guaranteed for a pastor. They may be mm. given a housing allowance to go and find a place. Yeah. But that that may also not be guaranteed. There are just a lot there are a lot of financial rabbit holes that we could go down that a mm. lot of people I think are not aware of how much actually impacts the church. Yeah. Mm. So Josh, how are you raised to consider the tithe and the way you personally engage with it? Like You've already mentioned as a pastor's kid, you have a different relationship than I do. So I'm curious to hear about your your history with the concept. I feel like I've heard more Christians that influenced me growing up talk about tithing as like spiritual practice. But I have heard people for sure also talk about it as obligation, even though right. like I think those Christians would also argue against legalism. Which in my mm. mind is like so paradoxical, like how I don't understand the leaning towards or the leaning away from legalism, but like making an exception that and like putting the the burden of obligation onto people that you should do something, even though it's not like a commandment. Right. I just think it's so interesting on a social level. I was thinking about this the other day, actually, that I don't think I've ever heard like someone who I would respect um, or someone who is uh, explicitly Christian, I don't think I've ever heard anyone make the argument that you are risking salvation if you don't tithe, but I've definitely heard people make the argument that you should tithe and that you're sinning if you aren't. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. But yeah. I don't think I've been in a, I don't think I've been in a church context where I've heard that from the pulpit. I think I've only ever heard it from uh, laity. Yeah. like non-clergy. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a really sticky line. I think there's language deployed often that makes me feel like it's almost like you're trying to invest into like a retirement opportunity. Like make sure you tithe from an early age because then like mm. your mansion in heaven might be bigger or so it's like <laughs> there's mm-hmm. a really there's a really weird twist if you're not careful into uh like prosperity gospel concept. Where it's like, unless you pay in now, you won't reap the benefits later. It's very capitalist sure. in a way, which is concerning. Well, I've totally been there, to be honest. Like, I've, I've totally, like, given more of my money because I thought God would bless me more. Mm. And, like, that's what started me down the rabbit trail of, like, different types of generosity because I totally thought that, like, whatever, God, whatever I gave, God would pay back 10% because... I thought it was in the Bible. Right. Mm-hmm. Different types of generosity. Is this where we get into concepts of like, there's the tithe and then there's the offering above and beyond the tithe. Is that what you're speaking mm-hmm. to? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Where but the I've tithe... heard people make the same argument for just the tithe too. True. But I think the tithe is, is often brought up in modern American churches as like, this is the obligation or the duty that is laid mm. out for us. Yeah. And I don't, I, I'm not, I don't think there's a textual argument 
for it being like a strict duty or obligation. That's well, that's where I feel myself getting. This is where some of my complex views come in because like I have pretty strong opinions about like living wages. And like, I think that if you believe that the church is a valuable social resource and that the pastor's job matters, and if you say you believe in like a specific community that you're attending, I think in some ways it is a social obligation. I don't think it's great hermeneutics to like make an argument for the, from the text because right. I personally don't think it's in there. But especially if you're like talking about the biblical concept of the tithe, I think that's a, I think that's a huge stretch mm-hmm. personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like I do think it's a social obligation to give towards something that you want to continue. Right. Yeah. Because there's a sense of like you're bought, you're literally bought into it. Like if you're supporting it with your money, it means you believe in the efforts of the organization enough to to treat it as valuable. And you signal Mm -hmm. that it's valuable to you by like sectioning off an entire percentage off into like supporting it. Right. Which is why classically tithe is 10% is like 10% is enough to make you feel it when you go to write your next month budget. Right. Like, oh, wow. Right. Like, yes, yes, it's only 10 percent and you can you can operate with 90 percent. But like Emily already spoke to, sometimes that 10 percent makes the difference between making sure that groceries are paid for. Mm -hmm. And that's that's where that's where that sense of like social obligation starts to unless the church is very, very careful about the way they communicate how the tithe is supposed to be considered by the church. Unless the church is very careful, that's where it starts turning into toxicity, where it's like, if you don't give, then God will not bless you next month. Oh, sure. You know, like, I think it transactional. Right. And I think it helps if people understand exactly where your money is going towards. Um, Mm. And that's one thing, at least the Methodist church, when we do ask for tithes and offerings, um, we try to instill that you know, this is exactly what this special offering is going towards. You know, this is this is what we're focusing on for this month or this is what our goal is for this year. That's so and cool. It, it stays in the local church or if we specify, you know, it's going to help the denomination as a whole with this specific charity. But we let people know what that money is actually going towards. So whether it's, okay, this offering that we're holding today, this is to help pay for scholarships for kids to go to church camp. This mm, this mm-hmm. month's offering. Whoa. This is going towards those who are going to seminary or a or a college affiliated with the church. This is to help pay for their tuition or their books. This offering Whoa. that we're holding. This is going to help go towards our local charity that we sponsor through Cody Cupboard. Like we're we're sending in a special donation and we're asking mm. for for people to contribute to that. But we Stephen, we, did you not have that growing up? You sound really surprised by that. Um, was it kind of hidden what the money was going towards the well. So at at my at the church I grew up in, there was a lot more transparency to the membership mm. of the church about how the money was being treated. I think right. when I started going to my previous mega church setting, the transparency like the veil got a lot thicker into what mm. what we were spending our money on and every year they would release a report. But when you're starting to speak in like where it's like, okay, so the church as a whole, the organization as a whole, we spent, or like the church tithes, so we give this like X amount of money to these charities that we support, like Charity Water or whatever. So like the church does that, 
10% of what the church brings in. But then it was like, we spend 20% on like making sure that our Sunday services are funded. And this goes down to like web hosting Mm -hmm. and making sure like the, the sound systems are set up. And then when like the quote unquote other category comes in where Mm -hmm. it's like 30% ish and you're like, wait, what's 30% of other that you won't tell us? Oh, that's what it's about. That is what bothered me the most. Like again, and I have to, I have to delineate between my original Mm -hmm. church, the church I grew up in, in youth group, the closeted Mm -hmm. Baptist church. That was the church where like members got a regular report about how staff was being paid, you know, even down to like, this is how much money we spent this year on printing the bulletins kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, that's why I think that financial transparency is only the beginning. Like, I agree that it's good, but I think that financial transparency only opens the conversation for you to then begin discussing like, oh, what's this going towards? Well, Do we need totally. to give this much to that? Totally. There are also, depending on your denomination, there are actually financial statements that you ha- you have to disclose to your congregation. Our book of discipline mm. actually asks that we, like during our ad council meetings, when our finance report is shared, that we give the report of where are we at financially. We are obligated to share that with our church because mm. they need to understand what's going on. But that's something that's that the Methodist church puts on you correct like it's the denomination that lays that out it's yes. not necessarily like the united states government is requiring this no it's the methodist profit right mm-hmm. yeah so but non-denominational churches don't have that sort of like, structure overstructure exactly yeah yep yeah especially when when it's like a non-denominational megachurch with multi-site structure right like so each Yep. Campus has to report for itself, but even then. And honestly, those numbers were more often given during the year end sermon series where it was like, oh, look how little. I, uh, the way it felt to me was like they would put up by the numbers, like Billings is accounts for 9% of our giving, whereas like this other campus huh. ac- accounts for five. And it almost felt like a guilt tactic where it's like, hey, step it up, you 5%, because this campus is doing better than you. And mm, that is interesting. There's a lot of there was a lot of goofy stuff in which is why still I'm struggling with this concept and why we're making an entire episode about it. If you like what you're hearing, the best way to tell us about it would be on Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us a five star rating and a review, which helps others find the show. If you'd like to leave us a longer message, our email address is theravelpod at gmail.com. If you find this conversation valuable, please tell a friend about the show in person, with a text, or by sharing about the show on social media. You can join us on Instagram and Twitter at RavelPod. Thank you to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music, In Full Color, off his album, Here. Find his work on Spotify and Bandcamp. And remember to subscribe to Ravel so that you never miss a new episode. Thanks for listening. Because like coming out of a context like that, I almost feel like I need that transparency. But one of my questions to you was, where's the line to be drawn in the transparency where it's like Stephen Henning knows exactly what his money is going to when he tithes. 
But at the same time, like, is he still trying to grip that money too hard and not like releasing it mm. in faith mm. the way tithing and offerings ought to be, where it's like, I'm giving to support this and I believe what this organization is doing, so do with it what you will. Where's that right. line where I get to be like, well, I'm not comfortable with us spending this much on like fog machine juice or whatever. <laughs> you know, that's a hard line. I remember a specific example at a at a church camp where there was a big donation that was made. And after the fact, the camp wanted to like they had some needs that they wanted to direct the money towards, like make repairs and stuff. And um, the person like threw a huge fit and like tried to like go to a bunch of board meetings and like send a bunch of emails because they wanted to donate the money towards a specific thing yeah not towards like general right things yeah and it was i don't know the number but i was told it was a hefty donation and to me that seemed like kind of an overstretch like if you wanted to donate money toward a thing that you believed in like it shouldn't matter what it went towards if you care about that place like it's their money to deal with it then but i can see on the other end like i can see that it's not good for a church with multiple campuses to nothing against the multi-campus model, but like I can see that it's not good for a church to be raking in money that's obviously way bigger than a small, small town church where the pastor's barely making it by, mm-hmm. but they're not reporting sure. what their money's going towards. Like here in Seattle, I know for a fact there have been and there are churches that totally do that model that are not financially transparent, but the pastors are obviously making good, good money. Right. Yeah, that gets sticky. That gets sticky though, because that was even the case at my previous church, where it's like there's a difference between the money they make off of, like being supported by the church through tithing, and right. if they choose to write books separate from the church, like the yeah, it's like their brand gets enmeshed with their pastorship at the church, but they are writing a book, totally. and they spend the money on writing the book and getting it published, and mm. I I do think that they're that they deserve the money they get from selling the book because they've done a good job at like putting their ideas out in the world. But that's where it gets extra sticky is like, right. You can see that they might be living a lifestyle that would probably come in above and beyond what their salary is at the church. But at the same time, it's like they're essentially like the book is their side hustle. Right. Maybe like, what do you think about that? Well, to be honest, uh, my dad has always had multiple jobs, even though he's been a full time clergy yeah. for the entirety of my life he has mm-hmm. almost always had second income because even with my mom's combined income being part-time working it has not ever been enough to like support a family mm-hmm. wow. so like i yeah. can recognize that that's quality qualitatively different than the mega church pastor who is already making enough and then like making more in book sales sure wow so it's it's complicated honestly like i think it's a very nuanced issue yeah I think a large, I want to say a large component of what is essential to disclose and not disclose is what is actually essential for the life of the church. So, you know, Stephen, I was Mm. hearing your examples of like, you know, fog machine juice and like all these other things. And that to me just speaks to what the church considers to be essential. And that could be a denominational thing. I know at least I can speak for the church that I'm serving in now. We have very clear ideas of what is essential and it's people. So we try to make sure that we pay our staff and that they are paid for because what they do, the work that they do is essential. Hmm. We can find ways to have money for our music. We can have 
the money for helping our youth. We can have the money to help go towards education. But the people that help run those programs are the reason that this church is alive. And it's those people that need to be paid. It's their job. You know, it's it's whether it's a part-time, full-time, they're retired and they're just doing it for fun. They're still doing it and they're still devoting that time when they could be doing something else. And I think that's what the church needs to be aware of is like, okay, yeah, we did buy this stuff for for the music. Mm-hmm. But think about what that is helping you to do in the long run. Like our music program at our church is known. People come to our church because of our music. And, you know, we don't have all the fancy lights and the fog machines and the the fancy get-ups, but we have people who come in day in and day out and dedicate themselves to the music program to make it thrive. And so while we may have a large music budget, it's not so we can be fancy and show all these people up. It's because these people have devoted their time to help increase that budget to say, hey, I know these people who are willing to give and they are willing to give their gifts of music and money. You know, it, it doesn't have to be this exclusive thing. There definitely is a hard line, though, of what to be transparent about. If it's not, if you're just sharing, you know, just rinky dink, <laughs> this is how much our electric bill was this month. Mm-hmm. They don't care about that because right. at the end of the day, if the lights are still on, then we're doing our job. But mm. They need to be aware that, yeah, the lights do need to run like lights are important. (laughs) If we're having a service, we can't we can't have service in the dark unless we're doing a candlelight service for Christmas Eve. (laughs) And that's different. I think the way we approach money as Christians can be very skewed. And it's biblical interpretation that partially is a part of that. And it's Mm -hmm. when we hear or read scripture that talks about money being the root of all evil. And even then like that is up for debate, but we then have this skewed idea of how then the church needs to use money. And while there are limitations to how the church should use money, we also need to look at realistically organizationally what the church actually does with money. It's not as much as people think. Yeah. Really. Mm. It's not. Well, so I guess it's obvious to me that I should clarify like the my my previous church context like it, like remove Stephen Henning from the system it's not like they're lacking for funds but it's also I'm not saying anything new and I also should point out it's like they they do good things they support directly into the cities that they're embedded totally. in mm-hmm. they do great things with the money especially like there's sure. there's this whole program around Christmas where a ton of people donate all sorts of gifts that are put on lists and the church creates like this dignified shopping experience where essentially every family invited mm-hmm. gets to, they essentially get to purchase at a huge like down mark mm-hmm. so that they have the dignified experience of purchasing the gifts for their mm-hmm. children and making Christmas special for their family that year. So like mm-hmm. even going into Christmas, it's a great, it's a great thing. The church does good things and like i don't i don't want it to sound like i just think that they completely waste every cent that gets funneled through the the organization Mm -hmm. but again like it comes into that discretionary area where it's like do we really need is this a need or a want or is like are we trying to put on a christian concert or are we trying to do church like Mm -hmm. i really like what you're hitting on steven because i 
I have a very strong opinion that I think generosity should be transactional. And if it's not transactional, then that's a red flag. Oh, please mm. say more. Please say, say more. more. Because like I I think that like I think that's the opinion that leads us to the conclusion that if you think that church is valuable and you believe in a specific community, then you should give to it. That's the same logic that means like generosity should be transactional. Like mm. you should only give to something if you believe it's meaningful and it's doing good work. Like those churches, like I think we've all experienced some sort of church context that does great work and gives money to good things. Right. Even if like some part of the church's finances are like subject to change or critique or little like, hazy some sort of change. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Right. But like that doesn't take away from the fact that they are doing good work. And a lot of churches in America are like g- good big funders of charitable work in their communities. And that's Correct. great. Right. Well, but yeah, and that, but that in itself means that it's transactional. And you know, as much as we don't want to say it, churches are a business. Mm. Yeah, even mm. if they're not profit, but that means that they're transactional, and that's good. Like right. I, I have some opinions about generosity for sure, but like I feel like, no matter like how I have pursued generosity, I feel convinced that no one can be truly altruistic without self-interest like there is some Mm -hmm. sort of transaction even if it's just the transaction of i feel good from giving i think that that's important to to note like that's not a bad thing yeah Yeah, because you get you get this phenomenon where like somebody philanthropically wants to pay for a wing of a hospital and then they put their name on it right it's like oh okay so there is even if you're buying for yourself just the sense that you contributed to the medical infrastructure of your city when you pay right. for a wing of a hospital sure. and you put your name on it, like maybe that's not all that bad, which gets us back to, I'm curious to discuss the, the money is the root of all evil concept. Mm. Um, does this, I'm honestly blanking. I did a lot of scriptural research, but a lot of it was old Testament for this episode. Does money, huh. does, does the phrase money is the root of all evil actually come from scripture? If I, if I remember correctly, the actual phrase is, the love of money is the root of all evil. But people, I think, want to cut it off and just say money is the root of all evil. And that is from mm. Jesus's mouth, correct? Ostensibly in one of the Gospels. It's from First uh, Timothy. Oh, I see. I, I even thought it was a, a Jesus quote. Interesting. Okay. That is yeah. interesting. So the one love thing that I of don't... money is the root of all evil. Sorry, Josh, I cut you off there. But I kind of am intrigued by that concept because... I guess one of my personal philosophies is money in itself is kind of a neutral tool mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. way the way you treat it and the way you spend it and the way you know like you can either hoard it or you can keep it flowing you can give or mm-hmm. you can feel guilted into like tithing or so, like mm-hmm. it's it's a neutral tool that you can do with what you will mm-hmm. and I mean this is this is a this is a pretty classic concept from uh some like famous christian financial gurus is essentially like (laughs) (laughs) we'll just name drop it's a dave ramseyism right it's like (laughs) it's like oh you went to fpu too oh wow i'm an alum that's a pretty big church thing isn't it too oops it is a church thing for sure but there is the concept of generosity where like your attitude around it Mm-hmm. Is really is really what informs either you love the money or 
You mm. love what you direct your money toward. Yeah. Totally. And maybe that's a church or maybe that's a podcast that you support on Patreon. All these. <laughs> well, no, I think that's real. Yeah. Like we got to talk about that too. Yeah. I think that's good. I'm sorry, Josh. I cut you off earlier. Well, I, I think curious. that that's anyway, why. Yeah. Well, you honestly, I think that that reflects more the story of Abraham. Like he, yeah. he wanted to give money towards something that he found value in and like wanted to, I, I don't know, the phrase give back is overused, but like he wanted to like recognize to that person, like I, I appreciated this and mm-hmm. it was not out of obligation. It was out of um, like love. Gratitude. gratitude. The Yeah. The love of his own heart. Like I can never remember the reference that like God loves a cheerful giver, but it's like, ooh, ooh, ooh. I it. literally, I literally have it open in my Bible. It's second oh. Corinthians nine verses six through 15. Good oh, job. That's great. Because I was um, I was literally about to lead us here. So I'm so wow, glad you got okay. us here, Josh. Well, <laughs> since you have it open, um, could you read that verse or verses for context? And because I think it gets taken out of context. Also share which version you're reading out of. Okay, oh, yes, so please. I do read the new King James Version. Um Amen. King James. Mm. <laughs> I said new. I'm still a heathen. <laughs> <laughs> So for context, he does have a section uh, just before called administering the gift in my Bible. So it's, you know, how you give of your time and other gifts outside of your money. But then verse Mm. six, he gets into, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his own heart, not grudgingly or of necessity for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Hmm. Amen. You know, it's interesting. I've definitely heard that verse used to justify like prosperity teachings. Like, see, the Bible says you like what you reap, you will sow Mm -hmm. or what you sow, you will reap. Like that's what we were talking about earlier. It's like if you if you pay in now your retirement account when you die, like in heaven, your mansion is bigger or whatever. But see, I don't disagree with the fact that like it is transactional. I believe that like you get something out of giving. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. And I don't think we should deny that. And that's probably yeah. the basis, because I did write that down in my notebook when you said generosity is inherently transactional. And it should that be. Was, that was curious to me until I read that just now and you pointed out, like, that's what Paul is saying, though. Yeah. I think one thing that's important to note, and this is maybe the pastor and me over-interpreting or whatever you want to say, um, <laughs> it's you who is giving. Like, you are the cheerful giver. It's not just this anonymous person. It's they're talking about you. And so I think they're speaking to giving financially as well as giving yourself. It's I was actually mm. talking about this with my committees on Saturday when we were discussing whether or not to reopen. Uh, I was bringing up the commercials. You know that the animal commercials where Sarah McLaughlin sings that song and it tugs on your heartstrings and you feel like you want to give? Yeah. Mm, we yeah. feel like we want to give because, one, it makes us feel good, and that's okay. Ooh. But also... But also, we're distant from it. We see this advertisement where it says, help this animal in a shelter that's really far away. Help this child mm. in Africa who's hungry and has no medication and has no home. Whoa. Whoa. There are things that are distant that we cannot see. Like, we cannot place ourselves in these situations. We are mm. now asking our churches, hey, you, sitting in the pews right here, right now, you see all of this around you? Help us keep this going. 
It's now you are put wow. in the situation where you are looking at what it is you are giving to. And like right. Josh was saying, if you love what is going on, if you love what's happening and you want to be a part of that, you give to that. But it's you are the one who are, is giving. You are the one who is participating in this action. It's not Joe Schmo across the street who's you know, feeling obligated to. And so therefore you also feel obligated. You are the one who is deciding for yourself if you want to do it or not. But I think that the the mistake that some people make is they turn social obligation into religious obligation. And they yes. take the verse, like they take verses like this cheerful giver verse and they say, see, God wants you to be a cheerful giver. And they like turn it into this weird, like religious obligation. But like by placing that religious obligation in a weird way, you're like, contradicting the text because like you can't be a cheerful giver and give out of the goodness of your own heart if you're being obligated to give but it can also speak to giving in another sense oh like Mm -hmm. of your time yeah Yeah. oh totally yeah because that's a gift and that's the thing is i think when people read scripture and it has been used for so long to preach a certain message that you can't unsee that verse now you only see it being applied in a financial lens well, that's what I think that's what I'm saying, though, is that if you're trying to oblige someone to give, then it's no longer a gift out of their own heart. Yeah. And that's why I don't do that. <laughs> totally. Totally. Good. I'm glad. So you're looking for. Well, I mean, I, I'm really glad I started with this passage of Abram with Melchizedek, because like that is literally where Abram out of the the welling of gratitude in his heart as a thanks given to Melchizedek for like Mm. for feeding his people Mm -hmm. it's here let me give you a tithe and even Melchizedek is like no 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 like I don't need that I didn't do this Mm. for you like Mm. I did this Mm -hmm. I did this because I am a high high priest of the the Lord most high right like Mm -hmm. I'm giving so it inspires you to give but instead of like just completing the cycle between the two of us let's figure out a way to like to expand yeah where all this generosity goes right it feels transactional. I think that passage can because Melchizedek comes and feeds his people. Abraham is like, mm-hmm. okay, I'll give you a tithe back. And Melchizedek is like, no, like, don't give it to me. Give it to someone else who is in need because I saw you were in need. Yeah. So instead of like a, a one in, one out, it's a pay it forward kind of concept, which is where that generosity, that's that's what this cheerful giver passage in Second Corinthians, if I can go on in the passage now that we're, we've talked about it for a while. So starting in verse 10 here. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God for the administration of this service, not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of their confession to the gospel and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you who long for you, because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. That's like, that's, that's a mic drop from Paul right there. He's like, yeah, pay it forward. Like I know like the Corinthians are supporting Paul in his ministry. They send him money. Mm. They send him food, making sure he's activated to go out into the world and continue preaching Mm -hmm. the gospel. And now he's saying also what I'm ready. But also Paul was a tent maker. Like he had a trade, like he had another source of income. He was not putting a burden on the Corinthian church and saying like, you need to right. give to me to support my ministry. Right. Yeah. He supported his own ministry in, in the profits he made from tent making. And then the, 
the above and beyond influx he got from churches like the Corinthians giving to him, he mm-hmm. used to just like amplify the message even more. And it activated him to be able to travel to other places like Galatia and Ephesus and Philippi, right? Like, mm-hmm. gosh, there's so much there. I think <laughs> this is a good time, though, to talk about. So there is a sense in which the the people of the Cody United Methodist Church pay a tithe to activate Emily to do right. full-time ministry work and not worry about her own version of being a tent maker. Mm-hmm. But what are we basing that on? Because like, like we literally just talked about, like Paul is a tent maker to not create a, a weird sense of false obligation between the people he serves and the, the, you know, the gospel he preaches, the ministry he makes, and the money side of things. I think the closest equivalent we have to it, not to steal Emily's floor, because this is kind of her question, but I'm ready I think to the hear, closest though. equivalent we have is that the modern day clergy, at least in these small church settings, is the closest modern equivalent to the way the Levites were supported by Israel. That's exactly mm. what I was going to say. Versus Paul does not seem to think that he is that equivalent. Yeah. And certainly other people throughout history have also thought the same thing, like monks making wine and beer to sell to support themselves. Right. Obviously did not see themselves as that sort of Levite situation. Well, and Paul would not have seen himself in that situation because he was a Jew following Rabbi Jesus Christ and he Mm -hmm. was of the tribe of Benjamin. Like we know specifically what tribe he belonged to. That's a good point. If he was a Levite, he might have felt a little bit more of that calling to be like, I'm already supported by what the rest of the tribe support like provide for Mm, me so now i'm gonna do it but because he's benjamin paul was not a levite so he would not have claimed that that's a good point that is a really good point josh you you hit it right on the nail so emily go ahead josh well i was gonna say like i think that some christians use the tithe to let the church off too easy and say more i i'm not accusing i'm not accusing you emily of doing this no 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 no. say more i i want to know i want to know like Stephen, you mentioned that your one of your older churches like had a part in their budget where they tithed, and I've seen that too in church budgets, right? Where the church says like we're giving a tenth away because we think it's biblical, and I'm not saying all churches do this, but I think some churches let that be an excuse to like only give a certain amount of money away versus wow. saying mm. like we're going to keep giving away. We've already given our church leaders and staff like enough money, we're not going to give the rest to them. We're going to like keep giving money away. Ooh. Yeah. Now that's a hard one because like, I think a lot of churches do struggle financially. And I think that honestly, there's a lot of clergy out there that are underpaid, but there's a growing number of like church mega pastors and celebrity pastors. Like we could point to the preachers and sneakers account as Instagram account as like evidence towards this phenomenon there's like an increasing number yeah. of people out there who are clergy who are well more than way like well taken care of. Yeah. And personally, oh, sure. I think it goes back to like this doctrine of tithing where they're like, oh, no, like we already gave our 10%. Like we're fine. Like we're sowing back into the kingdom. Like we're not giving more mm-hmm. than that. Mm-hmm. Oh. Do you feel like you guys have seen that too? Oh, in your experience? definitely. Man, yes. Preachers and Sneakers is such a good example too, because literally all the guy does is he watches a sermon. He's a Christian. Like he talks about on right. his podcast, like I'm a Christian. I believe what these guys are saying. But when I watch a sermon of theirs, I'll, I'll hop on the web stream and I'll notice, 
uh, like he's a sneaker nerd, right? He's a shoe nerd. So he's like, I right. noticed the shoes they're wearing. And then I just look up the market, the going market price for those shoes and just put a picture of them and the price tag. That's all I'm doing. Like, <laughs> yeah. But the social commentary that that creates is wild when it's like, hey, this pastor is wearing like $5,000 shoes for this mm-hmm. essentially performance. I've called it a Christian TED talk before, which is like, <laughs> there's a reason I say that because like the TED organization mm-hmm. is also wrapped into that kind of model. So here's an, here's a great example from the Methodist church. Y'all have heard of core, maybe church of the no. resurrection. Okay. No, what? what is that? Okay. So church of the resurrection is a church led by Adam Hamilton. He's the senior pastor of this Methodist church. They're a mega oh. church with about 20,000 members in Whoa. Leewood, Kansas. Okay. I've never heard of this. It is okay. the largest United Methodist church to my knowledge, like in the okay. world. It's huge. Um, okay. His Jeez. net worth, the pastor, the senior pastor, his net worth as of 2020 is $12 million. Wow. So does he write books or go on speaking circuits? Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. But what's interesting to note is that because he is the pastor of this huge hub for Methodists, Uh you know his pay is going to be through the roof Hmm. because of all the outside stuff he does. And that's Hmm. a factor of it. So how does it make you feel that he is an ordained member of the church that you're looking to be ordained into and that your your net worth will <laughs> yeah. like likely never be that um ooh well for one i could care less what his net worth is in terms of dollar values because mm. i can't put myself in a dollar value i mm. can't ooh the the i i and maybe that's maybe i'm tooting my horn you can interpret it how you want the work the, the work that i'm doing can't be equated to an hourly wage it can't there's mm. so much involved mm. with this job and the fact that i even see it as more than a job yeah i can't put a dollar value on it i mean mm, yeah right. it pays for my livelihood it pays you know, Alex and I have insurance. We're able to raise this child. We're able to, you know, buy our groceries and go out for coffee and things like that. Mm-hmm. But that there's so much more to what I do that I can't say this is how much I should be being paid. Like if I had a if I had an amount, I would say, hey, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I would argue that this is what i should be getting paid Mm. but i'm not gonna stop my work just because i'm not meeting that that paycheck well so the other thing we should point out before we go too far is that we don't we also don't necessarily we can't assume the the guy's heart who's leading this massive methodist church like for all we know he could feel the exact same thing and it's just yeah in an abundance of his generosity of his time like writing books speaking to people, spreading the gospel in the way he does, like Mm -hmm. the transactionalism of all of that work has created for himself a net worth. But for all we know, his his attitude could be the exact same as yours, Emily. And he's like, listen, I'm just doing exactly what I feel Christ is calling me to do. And it happens to be a, a rather large flock, you know? You know, yeah. And I hope that's the case. You know, I do. I hope that's the case. But I know that there are pastors who that is not the case. And my so heart hurts why for them. It's, this is why it's compelling to me that there are some 
church organizations, uh, even like the Catholic church, right? Like they, they explicitly take a vow of poverty mm-hmm. when they go right. into the clergy, when they become priests. Do because... Orthodox priests also take a vow? I can't remember. I feel oh. like they do. Oh, I somehow. think they do. That's that's a compelling concept to me because, um, what I mean, there are plenty of critiques of the the organizational leadership of the Catholic Church right now, but the the fact that a vow of poverty is required to enter into the the brotherhood, right, mm-hmm. is kind of a big deal. It feels like because they they're very much taking seriously the the call of Christ to like not only empathize with the poor, but become poor so that you can be mm-hmm. among them, like embedded in that kind of uh, community. Sure. Right. So there's so many, there's so many threads to chase down when it comes to money. Yeah. Right. Heavenly, is it possible? Cause I don't know how your denominational structure works. Is mm-hmm. it possible that this guy's church in Kansas, is that what you said yeah. it was? Lee was is it Kansas, possible yeah. that the money that is generated from that church feeds up the chain into the denomination and then also helps support churches like yours? <laughs> it should. Um, oh, oh, hot take. Okay. Oof. Um, so in the Methodist church, we have what's called apportionments, and it's where there are missions outside of the local church that we wish to be a service to. And so we ask our local congregations to essentially tithe a certain amount uh, to help with these larger denominational needs. Now, mm. the catch is we hope that churches can meet 100% of their apportionments. So if, let's say, a church is asked to send in, uh, this is a really bad example, but like $30,000, huh. and if they only send in 20000 you know, they didn't meet 100% of their apportionment, but that that doesn't mean then that money isn't put to use. It's not like you have to give all or nothing. Um, mm. There are many churches for a number of years, even still to this day, have never met 100% of their apportionments, but mm. it still doesn't mean the livelihood of the church just stops there. You know, we're not one of those organizations that's like, oh, you didn't give all of it? Well, sorry, we can't put it to use. No, we we they use it. Um, huh. And so large churches like that, it depends on what the conference sets as their apportionment. It depends okay. on, you know, the conference that they're a part of. They may say, okay, Church of the Resurrection, we're asking that you send this amount for your apportionment. And they may or may not be able to do that. Hmm. Oh, whoa. So it's not even hmm. like they don't even put a percentage on it, like a tithe, quote unquote. They like specifically give like specific number asks. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be, yeah, it's not, we hope that they make 100% of their apportionment, but we're not asking. That's interesting. Yeah. Why wouldn't they just like say, okay, everyone try to give 10% of your congregation's money? Because each conference is different. That's so interesting. Because like if they did that, that church in Kansas would be giving like a, like the same portion, quote unquote, but like they would be giving way more money. Well, and that's the thing is there are some conferences that they have no mega churches. They have no oh. large churches. And so if if their conference, all of these little small rural towns, if they can meet even 80%, 70% of their apportionments, they're already going to be better off because they've already been giving so much of what they can. And then wow. you have these mega churches where it's almost like they're flipping a dime in some person's cup and they're like, oh, we still got all this oh. money, you know, <laughs> like mm. – you want our apportionment? Here you go. Here's 100% of our apportionment. Now we can keep doing what we want. And Interesting. 
It's and so, again, this isn't to negate core at all. Like Church of the Resurrection does great ministry, but totally. it these mega churches do have a bigger financial role and really they have essentially kind of a freedom to whether or not participate. It's these other churches that really they want to try and they try and try. They just can't meet it, but they still try. And it's it's really like the heart of the matter that counts. Hmm. Honestly, Jesus is kind of a forerunner of the uh, um, great modern day philosopher. I don't know if you've heard of him or not, um, but he said, with great power comes great responsibility. And I feel like that's basically <laughs> what Jesus was saying. Wow. Shout out Thank to Uncle you. Ben. Thank you, Uncle Ben. Uh, it might sound that what you just listened to got cut off short and we cut it in the middle of the conversation and that's because we ended up talking for another additional hour so that's why it seems like we're cutting things short here you will hear the rest of our conversation next week you also probably notice in our show notes this week that there is a new feature uh we featured a link to our patreon and i know that might seem a little ironic because we uh (laughs) We're talking about money this episode. Uh, But if you would like to support us there, there is that option. Please, no pressure. But we do end up talking about um, our thoughts behind that quite in depth uh, next episode for that remaining hour. So you can listen to us talk about it next week. But for the time being, Emily, since we're cutting this conversation short, uh, would you give us a benediction for this week? Absolutely. Whether these conversations are an hour, three hours, or never ending, these are topics worth discussing, and we as Christians need to ravel out these ideas together in deep discernment and wholesome understanding so we can be mindful of how we are approaching our concept of giving and care. 